Hi, this is Jack White from Planet Earth, and um, you know me from such bands as The Strokes and The Vines. Um, well, I'm back again with that grunge rock. Okay, welcome to the next episode of Introducing, and I mean it this time. I really mean it. This person needs no introduction, but I'm going to do it anyway, just to keep things consistent, because maybe there's one of you out there, maybe, I'm sure there's not, but maybe, that's never heard the name Jack White. Um, let's go through some of the bands. I mean, look, 12 Grammys, he's in Goober and the Peas, a, a cowpunk band. The Raconteurs, known as the Saboteurs here in Australia. The Dead Weather, love them. We have Alison Mosshart from The Kills. And... Oh, yeah, The White Stripes. He's also been a very busy boy because he's released two albums and um, hit the road this year. Fear of the Dawn, which is just one of my favourite albums of the year. Just crazy. We'll talk about that scungy guitar soon. And Entering Heaven Alive. He's also on the road. I saw him at Glastonbury just recently. Hammersmith Polo, one of the greatest shows I've ever seen. And, yes, he's in Australia for his only show. That's right, his only show, November 19 at Harvest Rock Festival in Adelaide. Go buy tickets. Seriously, harvestrock.com. Go buy tickets. I mean, listen to this while you're buying tickets. Kill two birds with one stone. Sit back and relax and enjoy. His only Australian interview, by the way. This is Jack White. Tim Blackwell, are you the guy who does the uh, celebrity worst dressed list every year? <laughs> there is a Mr. Blackwell, isn't there? It's definitely not me and no relation. <laughs> we have uh, at Third Man Records, we have Ben Blackwell, who's one of our, their main main minute uh, Third Man Records. I often say the same joke to him, so don't worry. Oh, that's good. I know I like it. I like it. Um, I think I think he he was one of the first like kind of Perez Hilton style doll dudes, wasn't he? Oh yeah, I think you're right. I think mm. you're right about that. Um, well, no, thanks so much um, for your time, mate. I'm so pumped to talk to you. Where where am I speaking to you from now? Because it feels like you are a citizen of the world. You could be anywhere right <laughs> now. <laughs> That's kind of true sometimes. Uh, yeah, I'm, in, I'm at home in Nashville. Um, at home in Nashville for a couple of weeks. Let's start with the fact that you're coming out here, not only for Harvest Rock, but for one show only. You are aware how far away we are, right? <laughs> I know. Don't get me started. You know, it's like this kind of uh, – it's a strange thing because oftentimes – you know, for example, the the Asian tour that we're doing, this is me, this is 25 years of me trying to get to Asia to play. And that's never happened. I still have never done it. So oh, wow. one of the ways you try to go to an exotic place, like you try to go to South America, if you're an American band, is you, it, the best way to make, make it financially possible is to be attached to a festival in some way. Um, and this was one of the ways to, to get to Asia and also be able to play Australia. Because what's a, what's a real sad thing is when you're in an exotic place like you guys are, although you might not think of it as exotic, but to the rest <laughs> of the world, yeah. you're about five, 500,000 miles away. So <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it. it yeah, so uh, we want to go down, but the, the cost of shipping the gear and hotels and flights for the crew and all those things like immediately preclude trying to make cool things like that happen. So yeah. you're always trying to, you're always working angles and deals. And this was a great way to kill two birds with one stone to be able to not say, well, you know, I'm not going to actually go be able to go down under for this album and um but this way we got to do both so i'm i'm i'm, I'm happy about that 
I'll get to it in a second, but I, I saw you recently in London at Hammersmith, and I was I also saw um, the Rolling Stones at Hyde Park on that trip, and someone said oh. something very similar to me, saying, we couldn't charge what it would be worth per ticket to get the Rolling Stones to come to Australia. It wouldn't, it wouldn't be fair to the crowds. <laughs> All right, yeah, yeah. It's wild. But, uh, it's yeah, wild. I, but it was crazy. I saw you at Glastonbury, and then I, I that my first ever Glastonbury in 2014, I got to see you as well when you were doing uh, the Lazaretto stuff. So it was oh. so it was so incredible to see you at that festival and then mate I can't tell you on the Monday after Glastonbury to be able to see you in a in a, in a beautiful venue like Hammersmith to sit down in a plush seat and for your people mm. to take my mobile phone off me so I can just relax it was one of the great <laughs> come downs from Glastonbury but one of the great rock uh, shows mate you should be so proud of this new uh, this new set oh thank you very much I loved those London shows too they were really cool we we had very fortunately, we had really wonderful shows in London and in Paris and in Los Angeles. And we, 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 you know, where you, where you go to these major areas of the world and you, there's a significant amount of people and stuff. You, you, you kind of, you don't, you wake up that morning and you think, I, I don't know if this is going to be, you know, the show we did a couple of days ago in the middle of nowhere was, <laughs> amazing uh but tonight you know it would be nice if this was as amazing as that one was but you never know what you're going to get because you you we don't have a set list and we don't you know the pandemic is slowing down and and turning into something else and morphing and so you don't know what the crowd's going to be like every night but your band is something else but your band is something else though you you do look like you have like kind of some kind of sixth sense with each other where do you just have a little glance and they know what to do or do you do something with your fingers or how how are you communicating we we do yeah we do i think we end up doing certain signals and body language that we don't realize we're doing and they definitely have some signals between them of what song (laughs) if i come over and tell the drummer let's do this song the bass player will overhear me and he'll tell the keyboard player somehow. Right. And um, I don't know. We never sat down and discussed how to, to, to just do all this stuff. Sometimes I have to walk to each person in the band and tell them. Uh, but usually what I do is I start playing and then they immediately recognize it. And then we go from there. But there are times where I have to have another bass player, like the song Lazaretto you mentioned, the bass player has to start that song. So I have to tell them, tell yeah. him. And Sometimes he'll tell everyone else in the band, but usually he'll just start playing and they get the gist of it and hurry up and change their settings and off we go. You don't have anything like James Brown style, though, where you give them a certain glance and it means the rumor I heard was that you docked their $50 pay by fine. $100. Yeah, $50 fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, no, it's not that harsh of a punishment. It's, um, <laughs> it's not that harsh of a punishment. I, you know, I, the funny thing with me is I, I like to say, I, I wish I, I don't know how to say it. I don't want to be so bold as to say there is no such thing as mistakes in in my world, but it's it it is kind of like uh, I don't they don't bother me that much. I try to go into it like uh, that. Mistakes almost lead us to a different thing and lead us to a different direction that would probably end up being better than if we had rehearsed it perfectly. So I'm I'm always trying to get in that mode of being open minded to like I'll turn around and like maybe the keyboard player has a completely different setting than I was expecting to have for what sound he was supposed to make. And it wasn't what we discussed that we were going to do, but I'm open-minded to him. Like, okay, well maybe he's got an idea for something and let's see if we can play with that. And sometimes it works out better than we had planned. And so, but if you're, if you're, 
close-minded, you could ruin a lot of beautiful possible moments, you know, fall for the sake of doing it quote unquote perfectly or like the record or something like that. So I want every show to be unique. So I, I would rather live in a more dangerous spot. You do look like one of these, but when I've, I've seen you so many times, you do look like one of these, like you, you look so prepared, you look unprepared. And, and that's a compliment, by the way. And if it doesn't sound like it, I apologize. But you look yeah, like no, you, no, you, no. So, you so know what you're doing, but it also looks like you're making it up as you're doing it. <laughs> I was telling someone not too long ago, one of my favorite, um, couple of my favorite comedians uh, for stand up, uh, as far as their delivery was concerned, yeah. was a Patrice O'Neill and Louis C.K have this delivery where they 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 make you really feel like they just made that joke up three seconds ago in their head uh-huh. and that kind of delivery and I, I I sort of like commiserate or bond with stand-up comedians uh, stage uh, problems of a stage show when you when you're a stand-up comedian for example which is reading the room. And if that joke's not working, I've got to divert this to a different area, a different topic or something like that. Change the speed or change the the vibe. And the same way I look at it with playing music, if the crowd is not responding to that, I've got to think of something else and, and move into a different direction. And sometimes it's a drag. You might say, oh, I don't want to pull out like um, that kind of heavy song right now. I've got an acoustic guitar on. Yeah, yeah. But it's time to do it because if I if I do another acoustic quiet song, I'm going to lose these guys. So that's the way I'm I'm, I'm living like that. So yeah, they're, they're, if I'm giving off a vibe of it looks like I'm prepared, but I'm not actually. I think you're you're yeah you, you're you're kind of going exactly where I would would almost expect. If people looked at us like, I think one of our band members back in the past, Fats Kaplan, used to say. It makes me so mad, Jack. I'm like, what, what? He goes, that people don't know. We didn't rehearse any of that, that we just performed. <laughs> it makes me mad that they think we rehearsed that and it came off so good, but it was all off the top of your head and my head and, and we did it. And there was, we never practiced that song. You wrote that song in the middle of the set, this other thing or whatever. And, and they don't know that. And I'm like, I'm kind of thinking, yeah, that's a drag in one way. But in another way, I think, I think people... I don't know, subconsciously feel there's something that wasn't planned going on. There's some specialness to it. You can tell. Yeah. You can tell there's a little try. glint in your eye, you know, if you've got good Maybe enough seats, that is. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. <laughs> now, uh, Fear of the Dawn, you must be so uh, proud because, again, this is uh, like, well, I, I remember when I remember when um, uh, Taking Me Back came out and me and my friends were just sending it around, you know, sent, I have this little group of friends that we send songs around on, on a little group and we were just like, mm. just check this scungy guitar. I, I need to ask on behalf of them, how would you describe the guitar sound in this album and especially that song because- I'm very bad at describing sounds, but this just, it just kind of goes through your whole body, especially when I saw it live. Oh man. Thanks for saying that. It was really, uh, I was trying to get that real low end subwoofer growl into the guitar tones yep. and, and then have that really fierce bite, but also that pro tools kind of right in your face guitar, uh, tracks that didn't, you know, didn't sound like they were distant away from the microphone or in the room. They sound like right in your face, kind of when you play a radio, modern rock and roll song on the radio. So that that's what I was trying to produce it like. And it feels that way still to me. And I want to hear it, it still feels like it's got these left, right punches uh, vibe. But my hope was that there were multiple types of guitar sounds on the record uh, that went to different places. I, I, I played a lot of like... Like, for example, one of the effects was wah-wah uh, pedal that 
usually people, it's like the, one of the first effects they play as a guitar player, as a teenager, maybe even, and a lot of earlier bands like the Stooges and stuff like that really embraced it. And, 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 but, but, um, I always kind of stayed away from it. It always felt like a little bit too easy or too much, too, too overused of a sound. But on this record, I just started to get into it. I don't know. I bought this Russian one from the seventies and I really got into the Wawa pedal, uh, on some of these tracks. So, you never know, man. Sometimes all of a sudden, like that thing that you always thought, I'll never do that. All of a yeah. sudden you find you're doing it and you're getting something out of it on top of it. And that that can be kind of exhilarating because I, I like to make up rules for myself. But I well, the beautiful part of it is I get to break them if I feel like it. You know, there's nobody telling me you have to do blank. So I get to tell myself in the mirror, I'm going to do it this way. Yeah. And then the next time i come around to it i might break that rule it's like that kid's and cartoon I, like my only rule is break the rules <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can be you can be like it but you gotta set you gotta make a rule to begin with yeah that's right it. and then you throw it out yeah yeah that's it did you really lean into technology with this album a lot more than normal because um it, I, I know you're like especially with like the third man record stuff and we'll chat about that soon because I, I i went through your london store and did all my souvenir shopping there so thank you for that <laughs> but um, yeah. but like did you really lean into technology more um with with this record because you do seem to be a more of a back to basics um uh, with most of your previous work last couple of records it's been uh done all my editing on computer uh it doesn't matter if i record the, the onto tape and then transfer it right the editing I'm doing all on computer whereas i used to do it with razor blade and, and tape and the engineer would be doing that not me mostly so it's very difficult so when you want to do really complicated things you it's very difficult to do with razor blade and, and tape editing so i i i the songs that I wanted to record and produce and work on were a lot more intricate. So we, we, uh, I need to edit them on computer. So that, that's the, the beautiful, most beautiful thing about recording on a computer is, is the editing ability. I don't care for all the effects and the digital emulations of real life things as much. They don't really appeal to me that much, but the editing abilities that you have are so strong, so amazing. But you got to be careful because it opens a Pandora's box because you can just get in there and start clicking and clicking and clicking and and editing until the cows come home and and you forgot where you started. And uh, so you have to keep a, a rein on it. It's funny when I, I started in radio over twenty years ago, and the first learned to edit phone calls on reel to reel with a razor blade and and, and tape. Not as complex as probably a track, mm. but just you know taking out that arm um and the R and editing interviews. And when I'd come home from like my first day, you know, the studio, I'd have all these cuts on my fingers. Everyone's like, I thought oh. radio wasn't a very physical job. Why are you coming back so injured? <laughs> so I'm glad for my for my sake that that's not happening anymore. Oh, that's yeah. Well, you know, you've been there. Then you you know exactly what it's like. I'll edit this interview on uh, on computer, just so you know. Um, two albums and a, and a tour, though, when everyone's kind of just getting back to work a bit. Like it's um, how how did you feel? Like did you feel stifled when we were all locked down, or or were you just kind of in in a creative bubble and and you just obviously what looks like you made the most of it. Well, as we were talking about, I mean, and I'm kind of the, become the poster boy for restrictions, you know, like I've always <laughs> talked about, that's how, that's how one of the, one of the techniques I've used to create over the years is, you know, to, to figure out different ways of making rules and restrictions for myself and deciding whether to live in that box or to break those rules. So, so having a restriction given to me was kind of a, an outside a blessing because I, you know, I, 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 something that I always do to myself, but here it is finally happening from outside uh, of my little world. So I loved it in a way because the sad part about 
the disease and how scary that was and how, uh, you know, deadly it was on the outside was fearful. But in my home and in my studio, as an artist, it was uh, freeing in a way. And I got to say, oh, wow, we're not going to be touring this year then. That means I'm not going to make a record because I don't want to make a record and have it sit around for two years. So I thought this is, oh, wow, I get to work on furniture again. I get to work on interior design and I get to work on this other project I had and and, um, and work at Third Man Records uh, projects. And so in a way, it freed my brain up to a lot of things I've been putting away for years that I've been wishing I had more time for. So I was content um, during that, but I could also see my friends losing their minds. You know? <laughs> well, I guess with the, 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 the world that you've created too, with Third Man Records, like, I mean, for people maybe listening who, who aren't quite across it, can you tell us about that concept? Because it feels to me, even, even the London store I saw, it feels like this could be like your doomsday music bunker where this could all happen again, but you've got everything you need under one roof. <laughs> Uh, it's nice in that sense, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah we, we, we never, we have, I mean, you could, you know, a great example is this happened in the last album, which was uh, called Boarding House Reach. And there was a song called um, uh, Connected by Love. And that was, I wrote it and I had rented an apartment. I wrote the song in the apartment myself. I recorded it on four track reel to reel, the same stuff I used when I was a teenager. We took it and I added more to my, in my studio at home, we added more tracks. We took it to third man, uh, mastering and we mastered it in our own mastering studio. We cut the record lathe uh, on the record lathe, the vinyl master. We took it to third man pressing plant. And while we were doing that, we had the third man, the art studio, uh, our art department was working on the record sleeve and the record label for it. And then we took the master record to the pressing plant and we pressed the record. And at the end, they're handing me a 45 written, recorded, mixed, mastered and pressed all in my house that I own. <laughs> I don't think anybody has ever done that. No. Um, and I'm not saying that in a braggy kind of way either. Really not. You I'm can, just saying when I, handed, when, I, when I was handed that record, it took me back. It took me, I was taken aback a bit. I was like, holy hell. I mean, the entire process basically is in, in our world and how incredible that is and how much creative freedom we have to, to play with this and do so many things with it. We're not at the mercy of, of other people in any way. And um, I, that made me really proud that all the people in the third man hive that helped create that scenario were all involved in that scenario, uh, you know, and, 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 and contributing to it. So I, I, I love that aspect. I did see you um, with Zane uh, Lowe recently, and I, I think you were saying that it, it bla the black, though, is the one that sounds the best because you know how everyone's producing like burnt orange and marble sure, yeah. vinyl and stuff like that. Is, yeah. that. is that true? It is. And, uh, you know, we take this back to like Third Man uh, 2009, and we, we really kicked off a gigantic trend there with the glow-in-the-dark vinyl. And we had these tricolor vinyls that were three colors and, and getting people to do splatter vinyl and coming out with limited editions. And as well, we also had a subscriptions uh, club that you got uh, four records a year with and all this. So we were pushing all the boundaries of that early on and trying to get the plant in Nashville to do things that they hadn't done before. So we were really heavy into the early uh, days of, of this one. I'm so glad that it's taken off and, and, and blown up into what it is now with multiple variants for like the new Taylor Swift record or whatever. They're, they're, it's so cool that young kids are seeing the possibilities of that and getting into it. 
um, to talk about the sound quality of it, yes, black vinyl is the best sounding. Um, and that's why the majority of vinyl in throughout history has been mm-hmm. black because for some reason, I can't tell you the reason behind it, but um, what, what the microscopic reasons are, but uh, the black is the best sounding. And it's so funny, we've done them where you've had like a split color vinyl, like half of the record is black and half of it's glow in the dark green, which is notoriously a really bad sounding vinyl is the glow in the dark color. So when you get across that split as the record's spinning, it the sound quality it drops and then goes back to being good and drops and goes back to being good as the record, as the record spins. And it's really funny. Well, I just bought a, a, an early 80s Luxman um, turntable and amplifier. So it's my new most expensive hobby. Ah. So, you know, I'm, I'm loving oh, it. Oh, great. But, uh, but, but great. being here in Australia, as you'll see when you come out here in November, um, you've, got to be, you've got to store your vinyl like you would red wine, you know, because it can warp in uh, our heat. <laughs> oh, I bet. I yeah. bet. Yeah, exactly. But um, I tell, I know I will wrap up soon. I really, I've been loving our chat. I could chat to you for ages. But Harvest Rock, Harvest Rock I said uh, tickets are on sale right now. Um, you're out here with the Black Crows, Crowded House, Sam Fender, Kurt Vile. I had on the on the podcast last week. Um, uh, you got any friends on this bill? You're looking forward to catching up with after a long time. Well, it's interesting you mentioned the Black Crows because when I was a teenager, I worked in as a busboy in a restaurant in in the Fox Theater in Detroit, and. I, I took a break one da- day in the restaurant and snuck over into the theater and watched the Black Crows sound check when I was 16 years old. And um, it was so wild that nobody yelled at me and kicked me out of the room. I was just sitting there and uh, the band was walking around and said hi to me and things like that. And it was bizarre, you know, and um, I ended up meeting them years later when I was in the White Stripes because they had a keyboard player named Eddie Harsh, who's from Detroit, like us. And uh, he brought us in while we were working uh, in New York and he brought us in talking. I was telling those guys, it's so funny. And, and now the drummer lives nearby me in Nashville, the drum, the original drummer of the Black Crows. So I have a little bit of history with those guys. Yeah. Oh, great. Well, you're 9.30 uh, Saturday on the Harvest Stage. Make sure you buy tickets wherever you're listening from. Go go down and see this scungy guitar. Hear this scungy guitar <laughs> um, yeah. in, in real life. Jack, it's been an absolute pleasure, mate. And um, uh, this might be a very hard question for someone like you, but uh, we like to kind of end our chats with maybe paying it forward a little bit with music. Anyone you'd like to introduce us to, anyone you're listening to right now that you'd love to just say, Please check these guys out. Well, there's this really cool punkish kind of band in Detroit called The Stools. That's really good. Yep. And I also like this band from L.A. called um, The Paranoids. And uh, I like what the gals in Wet Leg are doing out in Britain. And, uh, of course, you got down there, uh, Emil and the Sniffers, right? Oh, yeah. Emil and the Sniffers. I I saw them at Glastonbury, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, they they're doing some interesting stuff too. Yeah, really, really those are some those are some modern ones I'm I'm into. Mate, pumped to see you out here and and, and see you live again on my home ground. So you you'll love it out here. Yeah. All right, man. I'll see you there. Thank you very much. <laughs> see you later. <laughs> Push your pull.